Hi, I'm James Anderson Foster, and you're listening to Out on the Fringe, a weekly podcast of awesome serialized science fiction written by amazing authors, performed for you by professional narrators, and brought to you by SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Serial Audio presents Convergence, written by Michael Patrick Hicks, performed for you by Travis Baldry. Episode 4 Chapter 6 The burlap bag was rough and itchy. It stank of sweat and copper and made my skin crawl. When they pulled it from my head, the sudden brightness stung my eyes. My eyelids closed in painful reflex and purple shadows shot up against them. Brief people shapes, the glow of light, and shapes I hadn't had time to process and recognize danced around me. Slowly, I opened them, adjusting to the dim light. A single bare bulb hung overhead. I could hear the hum of a generator. The walls were bare drywall, chipped and stained. My shoulders ached. My hands were cuffed tightly behind me, and the chain link had been woven through the slats of the chair's back. My leg hurt as the morphine started to lose its grip. I'd bled through the gauze, and all the moving I'd done over the last few minutes had reopened the holes on either side of my thigh. Blood beaded and dripped, making little smacking noises on the concrete floor. The man who had taken the sack off my head was already exiting, slamming the door shut behind him. It hit the frame with a heavy clang, followed by the tinny click of a lock latching. My back was to the door, not a situation I particularly enjoyed. I wanted to see what and who was coming at me. This was part of the process, though, a way to amp up the anxiety, charge up the fear, and make me wonder. The room was small, not much to see, not much to do but wait. We had driven for maybe an hour, but that estimate was useless in determining where I was. They had driven in circles, changing up their route and doubling back. We could have been back at the Bank of America for all I knew, but I figured that was a bit too humorous and a bit too ironic for these guys. The dampener jammed into the side of my head had started chattering away during the drive. Somebody had been pinging my brain wirelessly, checking for traps, mining as much info out of me as they could. It had taken them a while to crack the firewalls and memshells and work on diffusing the digimines that checkered my neural weave. They were well-trained and proficient, and their hard work overcame the technology and my patchwork security. They plundered as much as they could. They were no doubt busy reviewing and piecing together the data trove while I sat chained to a chair, guessing at what they knew or thought they knew. The message was pretty simple. Lying was pointless because they'd siphoned off my entire life during the drive. The downloads wouldn't be enough to prevent what was coming, though. Memory was subjective and deeply layered, but some finely tuned questions and proper motivation could work together to create new angles on interesting answers. They were waiting for the morphine to wear off a bit more before they got down to questioning me. They would want me pliable and in need, willing to barter information and answers for painkillers, I knew the ploy. Dope me up, get me feeling good, and get me to forget about the pain and used to feeling numb. Then they would let it wear off, let the pain come back in, and make me hurt. They would ask me questions, find ways to make me hurt in other ways or other places, and ask me the same questions in different ways before promising me more morphine and asking me more questions. The interrogation would give their techies time to piece together the data dumps and work on comparing it against my answers, and then they would question me even harder, believing they had a more complete, but not quite full, picture from which to pry loose more information and more truthful answers. Then, maybe, they would reward me with a shot of morphine and start it all over again. The walls were thick, but muffled screams made their way toward me from somewhere down the hall. The scare tactic didn't work too well because the noise was blunted and dull. I could hardly hear it. Closer, but still barely audible, voices came through the door. Their conversations were muted and indecipherable. I wondered about this unit's military bearing. The clean, fresh battle fatigues their commander wore struck me as strange, out of place. 
Where would militarized insurgents stuck behind enemy lines for years get fresh uniforms? Whoever they were, they weren't local. A number of active cells hiding out in the wastelands and demilitarized zones routinely threatened to topple the peace. The Northern Alliance, their allies, and the PRC were mutually agreed that these rogue factions were terrorists. Once upon a time, they might have been called heroes before the war degenerated into the usual politics. The politicians in charge, the ones who claimed they were solely responsible for spearheading the war against the PRC in the fight for California and much of the western seaboard, had quickly grown fatigued. The war took up too much bandwidth, and the constant reports of violence desensitized the public. Americans were quick to turn their fear and anger into confusion and apathy. Nobody had the patience for sustained combat. Not after the first year. Definitely not after the second. Nobody had been satisfied with a slow campaign, and when the Pacific Rim Coalition found themselves unvanquished after days, weeks, and then months of fighting, much of America had given up hope. Our leaders had promised a swift resolution and a quick victory. That didn't happen. A war-weary nation and its hand-wringing politicians quickly turned on its own people and chalked up California as a loss. The liberals cried and pointed fingers, refusing to believe they bore any of the fault. Tea Party conservatives shrugged off any responsibility and blamed Los Angeles for the PRC invasion, saying that the state's liberal attitudes had angered God, and this was punishment. The porn industry and scores of violent TV shows, movies, and video games that had for so long corrupted and plagued American children, they said, were the cause for our exile. We were too liberal and too weak. We had been more concerned with having abortions and legalizing drugs, dreamer and prostitution than with resisting the enemy. Indifference became a national pastime, but it did not stop the war. It didn't save New York or D.C., or halt the millions of deaths across the Eastern Front. It didn't stop the militia uprisings. The PRC and their Russian and Iranian allies burned the White House to the ground. Their minor dictatorship wasn't able to stop domestic terrorists from smuggling backpack nukes into the nation's capital and wiping it off the map. I remembered reading in high school that the average lifespan of a democracy is 200 years. By the time America fell... The country had been well overdue for change. It had been even longer since a foreign army had set foot on U.S. soil. Maybe we were overdue for a lot of things. Chaos reigned and nobody knew who the enemy was. Militia groups struck out against the police, the army, the National Guard, and the PRC along the western fronts. Terrorist cells and minor factions rose up to join the frenzy. U.N. peacekeepers constantly found themselves under attack. The military was ordered to pull out of California. The disorganization of their hasty withdrawal was infused with bitterness and disbelief. Entire units went AWOL, ignoring the winds of political change. They stayed behind to fight, to carry out the orders of a country that had given up and ceased to be. The state's borders were redrawn in a cordial agreement between the PRC and the Alliance, the de facto recognized government of choice. The governments reached mutual decisions, while many of the people did not. People like me and those of us living in Echo Park were remnants. We had no country, no homes. We were displaced exiles with nowhere to go. We could try to brave the DMC that separated California and a pocket of Oregon from the rest of North America and maybe die in the desert, either from exposure or the military and militia groups that patrolled it, keeping the nation-states secure. Plenty of organizations fancied themselves freedom fighters. Could be one of them that had me handcuffed to a chair with a bullet hole in my leg. I wasn't quite convinced of that, though. So far, a certain level of equality had been present in the proceedings. Not exactly kindness, definitely not respect. It was at least a professionalism of sorts. Militias were more down and dirty. I didn't think a militia would have bothered to wrap my leg or waste precious morphine on me. I wasn't convinced they would have taken a prisoner. No, these guys were military. This was all part of a technique. They were softening me up, or trying to. But the real brutality would come soon, the kind that would put even the militias to shame. The voices outside grew closer. Their words, while still muffled, became more pronounced. I could pick up syllables and emphases, but not the conversation itself. The door lock clicked again. Its hinges were smooth and oiled, but the weight of the door carried it open and sent it thudding into the wall. 
The men who entered were quiet, and I had no idea how many were sneaking up behind me. Jonah Everett, one of them called to me. I'm Sergeant Captain. A face caught up with the voice, stepping in front of me. I recognized him from the bank, the big black guy that I had pegged for being in charge. Nice to know I was right about something. I nodded to him curtly. Hey, Sarge. He was dressed a bit more casually than he had been earlier, his torso covered in a brown military-issued t-shirt instead of the combat jacket he'd worn at the bank. His left arm was a robotic prosthesis, a gift of the once great United States. It seemed to work as well as his organic right arm and had full range of motion. The midnight blue color of the thick Kevlar shell and the heavily reinforced joints and points of articulation gave it away as military. Under the Kevlar was a complex mess of wires and EMP shielding encased in tough plastic. The limb was well-crafted, but inhuman. Like his real arm, the prosthetic was controlled by neural impulses so slight that he never really had to think about how to move it. As good as the real thing, but probably better in a lot of ways. He grabbed my jaw between one large mechanical paw and turned my head roughly. The robotics gave him an incredible degree of strength. This was him trying to be gentle. He held my head at an uncomfortable angle, his fingers, cold and rough, poking at me painfully. That's a nasty cut you got there. His thumb dug into the gash. The bullet wound to my leg had made me forget about the pain in my face and the shard of bone I had pulled out of my cheek. He snapped his fingers and held out a hand. Somebody behind me handed him a brown bottle and a wad of cloth. He jammed the cloth against the mouth of the bottle, upended it, then jammed the cloth against my cheek. The cool burn was antiseptic, and the strong stink of alcohol invaded my nose. I winced, felt liquid trickle down the side of my face to pool between my neck and shirt collar before evaporating in the still air. How's your leg? Not well enough for your hospitality. Check back later. He slapped my cheek, but not hard. The gesture had a hint of joviality to it, as if we were old buddies, and he smiled. He took a chair from another man behind me, opposite from whoever had handed him the bottle. He sat across from me, crossed his ankles, and tucked his legs under the chair as he leaned forward. The gesture was oddly prim, but I figured, don't ask, don't tell. Tell me about Samuel Hodgson. Who? I asked, genuinely confused. I didn't know anybody by that name. What about Jamie Kristoff? I knew the game here. It wouldn't matter if I answered truthfully or not. This was just an opening volley, and they would ask me the same question a thousand times in a hundred different ways before this was over. I knew my role here. I could tell him, and then keep repeating myself over and over, or I could deny, which was probably what he expected. Either way, I was in for a beating. I don't know, Jamie Kristoff. I smiled to let him know I knew how this game was played. If I was right, he'd already had my memories vetted for traps and downloaded. He knew what I knew. But he was at least smart enough to doubt it, and too smart to assume that because he'd found them in my head, they were automatically vouchsafed in valid memories. All right, he said, sounding disappointed. He puffed his cheeks, then blew out a strong, disgusting huff of breath into my face. He nodded, his eyes darting over my shoulder. Behind me, something cool wrapped around my index finger at the first joint, just past the nail. There was a quick, tight pressure, and then it released. Stomping my legs, I screamed as the pain flooded through me. Captain tore the bandage from my leg, and the man behind me handed him the piece of finger they'd cut off. He jammed it into the bullet hole without ever breaking eye contact with me. This was bad. Not at all what I was expecting. Worse. A gorge rose in my throat, and my stomach pinched and twisted painfully. The pointed edges of my ex-fingernail dug into the raw flesh of my wounded leg, twisting and turning. Perversely, the word thumbscrew popped into my head, and I wanted to laugh through the agony. Instead, I spat up water as my stomach heaved. My face burned, and little dots of sweat broke out against my forehead and temples. More water splashed out of me in a thick sheet of liquid and phlegm dribbling down my chin. I'm not fucking around with you, Everett. You answer me or we cut some more, shorten a few more fingers. Then I'll let the medicines put you back together and start over, lest you start getting smart here. I grinned through the pain, the world tilting crazily around me. I was hunched over as far as my arms would let me go, spitting between my legs, but I looked up and found his eyes. I don't have medicines, you asshole. 
That one got me a punch, a hard one. No pull on his cybernetic patch job this time. Loose teeth popped free and I tasted copper. That's too bad, he said. You struck me as a medicine man for sure. I laughed, honestly amused. He was referring to an old advert from years ago, back when medicines had been new. Daedalus Industries had promised to cure mankind's ailments with a vaccine of nanomeds that would boost the immune system, slow aging and cellular decay, and improve cellular recovery. Cuts and bruises healed in no time. The adverts showed brief glimpses of policemen, firemen, and military professionals in the course of an average day. They all said the same thing, to a T. I'm a medicine man. Then it closed in an operating room with a brightly lit woman dressed in surgical garb saying, and I'm a medicine woman. It earned Daedalus a tremendous amount of popular support. I'd never bought into it. I avoided the nano boosters the same way I disregarded annual flu shots. I was beginning to regret it. So, tell me, what do you know about Jamie Kristoff? He runs a bar, grows his own potatoes, makes his own whiskey. It's good. Uh-huh. For those of us in the tents, he's a nice little corner of the way things used to be. Somewhere we can go and feel normal. Even with all those guards looking down on you, fucking with your water. He caught my eye and winked at me. My run-in with Timmons was a recent event, a surface memory that would have been easy for them to download, loaded with emotion and kept close to the heart. Truth be told, I was still pissed off about it. I tried hard to settle in the chair and find a more comfortable position. It wasn't easy and I was dizzy and lightheaded. My finger ached with each pulse and a coppery taste tainted my mouth. I spat again, noticing all the old discolorations on the floor around me. He's like you guys, I said. The air around me changed and something told me that was not the right answer. Instinctively, I braced for the blow. I was trapped under a flurry of punches as the men behind me took shots to either side of my head. My ears rang and something inside my skull popped. Captain was yelling, but not at me. My shoulders were hunched, my head down, chin buried in my chest. Everything hurt. Nose broken. Had to be. Get out, he said to the men, his voice calm but hard. A wordless moment passed before the door clicked shut again. Cold fingers pried at my chin, pulling my head up. Jamie, what the fuck did you get me into? Cybernetic fingers pinched my cheeks hard, forcing the skin between my teeth. You and Kristoff, you ain't nothing like us. We clear, and we sure ain't nothing like you, you understand that? I tried to nod, but couldn't with my face trapped in his grip. Look, man, I said. The words were thick, clumsy, and slurred. My lips were fat and swollen. We do our part. We try. The war, it's over. We take pot shots where we can. He looked at me with a degree of pity and a shade of sadness. He slid down the wall and sat. You live with them, he said. In the tents. You eat their food, drink their water. You don't do shit except kneel, and you say you're doing your part. That's bullshit, man. You're weak and you're a fool. You're being played up and used, and you don't even know it. I fought, I said, desperation creeping into my voice. I took lives. I know what that's like. Maybe, he said. Maybe once, before. But I know you, Everett. Who you are now. You're a fucking junkie. You kill for the ma'am, for the rush. DMT, right? You're a dreamer, nothing more. No, that's not- Shut up. Quiet down for a minute. This is how it's gonna go. You've taken shelter with the enemy. You and everyone else in those fucking tents. You turned your back on us, on your country, on your homes. We got your memories as much as we could, and we'll splice them into a nice little story we can easily follow and forensic the shit out of. And then I'm gonna put a bullet in you. Neither of us spoke. The air was still and quiet. You defiled that girl, he said. I must have looked confused because he screwed up his face and made a small angry ticking sound with his tongue and teeth. The one you found during cleanup, the one whose gore is all over your hand there from tearing out her back up. Jamie, Alice shit, what the fuck did I get into? I hated his self-righteousness. Better to hide bombs under them, right? Kill whatever innocent fucks find her? 
Ain't none of you innocent, Captain said. You're colluding with the enemy, all of you. You're cleaning up the mess those chinks made, handing our cities right over to them. We're not colluding, I tried to say more, but he wasn't having any of it. You slaves there, that it? Your hands aren't clean either. No, mine ain't at all, but at least my head is. I'm not some washed up whore needing a fix. But what about you? That how desperate you are? He asked. Defiling dead girls now, looking to get high off the war kills. It's not like that. The words were a hollow lie. The truth was I would have burned copies, played them, and passed them off for credits or favors. I would have lived her life, licking my lips in anticipation of her death and that white, burning rush of death's chemical dump. I would have played it over and over until euphoria turned to unconsciousness. Nah, sure, you molest them for the money. I couldn't deny that. A small degree of shame sank in over the truth of his words, but I was already feeling beaten. It's why you killed that general, right? Little Alice, she's got her hands in a lot of pots, too. What do you suppose that's all about? I wouldn't know. Course you wouldn't, he said. So, Jamie Kristoff, what do you know about him? I mean, what do you really know about him? I thought about it and about what I knew. Remembered Mesa asking me what the fuck I know about anything. Everything hurt. My vision was limbed with red and each heartbeat brought pain. He asked me if I wanted more morphine. My finger throbbed, cascading waves of torment that tickled their way through my whole body. He leads a cell, or at least I think he does. I hated myself for this. Talking, spilling secrets. He was responsible for the bombing on the 101. He lost his wife in the war. We both did. After the U.S. gave up on us and pulled out, we were on our own. We had nothing left, not a single fucking thing. And he never told you nothing, huh? Hey, you got all my memories, man. There's not much else I can add. We think we have your memories. Some surface ones, sure. But deeper down, who knows how reliable it is, especially with your jacked-up brain. How many mems you'd say you'd done now? Hundred? Thousand? You even know which are yours buried in that skull? Which ones are reliable? You got any suppressant software in there? Anything maybe your subconscious is electing you to forget? Any wipers in there? Maybe reformatting your shit? I didn't know how to answer. He wouldn't believe any arguments from me, and I didn't have any I could sell credibly. Not while I was crying and bleeding all over the place. I was a shell, and he was picking me apart one piece at a time. The few defenses I did have had been hacked through far too easily for my liking. My thought bombs and mem minds had proved impotent. His questions about Jamie made it clear he knew things that I did not, and he was aware of it. He was plumbing for information, but his mind was already made up. He had passed judgment on me long before speaking with me, maybe even before the download on the ride over. Tell me what you know about Samuel Hutchson, he said. Again, the name threw me. I didn't know what the hell he was asking me. Whatever it is you're looking for, I can't help you, I said. He pushed himself to his feet and walked out. I wondered how long it would be before he came back and we did all of this again. My vision faded, the red going black. The touch of fingers roughly pulling at my wounded hand tore me back to consciousness. A young voice told me to straighten my fingers. A rough piece of wood was jammed between my teeth and I bit down, bracing myself for the pain. But bracing for it was impossible. They said nothing. Their silence was punctuated with the hiss of an igniting flame. I howled as they cauterized the stump of my index finger. The rubbery smell of my cooking flesh was acrid and nauseating. The cuffs had worn oozing rings into my wrists and my arms were numb from immobility. When I tried to shift my weight, a blaze of pinpricks traveled up and down my limbs, and they felt heavy with sand. Everything hurt to varying degrees, some a dull ache, others a throbbing soreness, but each wound was vivid in its pain. The light above me died, and I was abandoned to the darkness, left alone and broken. I didn't know how many hours passed. I slept poorly and with no recollection of having fallen asleep. When I woke, my neck was sore and stiff, and all of my other pains had multiplied. 
Muffled screams lulled my eyes open. I had to piss so badly it hurt. The door opened. Harsh light spilled in, shocking my eyes after all the hours of blackness. I'm undoing one wrist. Just the one, though, Captain said. You're going to stand up and allow yourself to be recuffed. With that done, he gripped my arm and led me out of the room. The screams grew louder, then softer as we passed, distancing ourselves. What's happening? I asked him. My mouth was dry and the words cracked. Seems you got a benefactor. We're through here. Who? The only answer I received was a small push forward up the steps. My legs were weak and tired and I was ready to topple over. Captain stayed close enough behind me that his breath warmed the back of my neck. We went down a long, wide corridor. Guards were positioned on each side of heavy metal doors that were chained and padlocked. Captain was apparently quite security conscious and had a thing for chains. Didn't want anybody getting in nor out. His little fiefdom was far less porous than the refugee camp at Echo Park, which made me question the nature of his beliefs and how high up his moral high ground truly was. Outside, the differences dividing Captain and his regiment from the PRC grew thinner. If there had been a line drawn in the sand, it had eroded severely. The daylight revealed rows of canvas habitats and dirty, grimy people, fewer than those at Echo Park. For some, their clothing was nothing more than thin shifts of fabric. Children were hungry and thin, their faces long and hollowed out, making their round eyes appear too large and alien. Ribs poked through papyrus flesh above distended bellies. Armed guards, well-fed, muscled, and healthy, were a far cry from the gaunt wraiths living around them. They had been given purpose by the guns they carried, while everyone else seemed lost and sad. This was not an outpost of freedom fighters, nor was it the last bastion of a dead America. The people here had no country, no objective. They lived merely because their bodies were too stubborn to die. Captain had built up a dominion of rulers and their weak subjects. Even after all the wars, all the fighting, and all the death, Captain and his inner circle had learned nothing. They fell back instantly on the ancient instincts of survival. I wondered which version of the American dream he was really fighting for. At least you're free, huh? I said, feeling bitter. Animosity welled up out of nowhere, and I suddenly felt a lot less pity for myself. Rage burned inside me, along with hatred for the hypocrisy. He didn't seem to appreciate my contrary tone, even as his eyes wandered over what I had seen, maybe trying to see them from my perspective. He said nothing. My pace lagged a bit, and he shoved me forward again, intent on keeping me moving. The eyes of hungry strangers dogged my every step. I couldn't tell if they were jealous, piteous, or just empty stares. Small clumps of grass grew among weeds tucked into the cracks of broken sidewalks. Before the war, this had been an industrialized area. Everything was crumbling and rusted, an ill-maintained haven for broken souls. The remains of a massive metal crane towered over the site. Metal shipping containers, abandoned and forgotten, were stacked three or four high. The ground-level ones had been turned into a squatter's nest, home to a dozen people, if not more. Captain helped me into the back of a jeep, clearly a military relic, open to the air. He sat in the passenger seat while I rode in back. Our driver's was not a face I recognized. A second jeep carrying four people followed ours. The drive was neither slow nor fast. The batteries that ran the vehicles were silent. The tires kicked up dust all around us, turning our skin gritty and chalky. The men were silent, except during brief radio communiques, and those were mostly to confirm that the people ahead of us were in place and the rendezvous was clear. We drove for maybe an hour. The sky went from blue to orange, but I did not know what day it was. My seclusion in the dark, along with having slept, had deprived me of any sense of time. It could still have been the same day. I could have worked on the reclamation site that morning, and the world was only just giving way to dusk. It felt as though more time had passed, though. A day at least. But when I asked, I was ignored. I watched the city slide by, remembering how it had looked before the war. The fighting had turned it into a dilapidated graveyard that stretched for miles. Nature had begun slowly reasserting itself, blurring the landscape with subtle greens from plant life that had found incongruous methods of supporting itself. Ahead, a pair of lights flashed on-off, 
on off. We slowed, and a garbled voice came over Captain's radio once again. First the outlines of figures began to resolve, then people more distinctly. I recognized the lanky man standing in front of the plate-armored hood, dressed in a slimming black suit, a white button-down, and a thin black tie. The shine of his shoes had been lost to the cinders he'd walked through. Captain helped me from the jeep, mostly by stopping me from falling on my face as I half-tripped, half-jumped out of the vehicle. His patience and assistance were odd after all that had happened earlier. I looked at the skyline, knowing he had installed spotters well before this arranged meeting. I could practically taste the distrust in the air. If snipers were secreted away in the unfinished skeleton of the Alcyone Towers, they were well hidden. He walked me forward, staying behind me, but pressed closely in a manner that suggested a degree of intimacy neither of us felt. From the way his body hugged mine, I was clearly a human shield. His movements were close, tight, and unsubtle as his arm moved behind me. The cold, hard metal of a gun pressed into my back. My breathing turned shallow and a pit opened in my belly for my balls to crawl up into. My mouth was dry. I sucked a scab loose from the jagged stumps of missing teeth. We stood patiently for a moment while the driver examined us. High walked around the vehicle's hardened shell to the rear driver's side door, and a pair of shiny black heels stepped onto the earth as shiny black hair rose above the doorframe. Alice Shi turned to me, studying my cuts and bruises as if she were taking inventory. She saw my torn pants, the pucker of skin, and thick clots of blood from where I'd been shot. Her lips were pursed in disappointment, but when her eyes met mine, they were unusually soft and tender. I hadn't been sure who my mysterious benefactor was, but when I saw Alice, I wasn't all that surprised. Even though our relationship was often one of employee and employer, we shared a mutual respect and, if I squinted hard enough, maybe even a degree of camaraderie around the rough edges. She stood alone, ahead of the car, halfway to the space that separated us, while her driver hung back. Hers was the lone car on the far side of the imaginary divide separating us, and she and High were woefully outnumbered by the soldiers flanking my rear. I wondered if she had taken precautions similar to Kafton's. She seemed unconcerned and cool to the whole affair. He recovered a memory chip. It's in his right hip pocket, Kafton said. His voice was loud in my ear, but his body pulled away, and he whispered, I'm going to uncuff you. Keep your arms at your side, your hands away from your body. He nudged me forward and I could still feel the gun pressed into my back. My body would hide it from view for several paces and I knew its presence alone would bore into me every step of the way. I had a hard time walking. Unbalanced and uncoordinated, my feet shuffled forward as I limped painfully and over-favored my good leg. I probably resembled a penguin wobbling toward an invisible line. Alice urged me forward with her eyes. The rest of her body was motionless, coiled tight, and waiting to strike. I nodded to her. I was still close enough to hear Captain's soft voice, intended solely for my ears. I forgot to tell you, we finished splicing together all your memories. Remember that promise I made you? I had no time to turn, no time to question it. The gunshot boomed in the still air, driving me forward. I stumbled and fell to my knees, coughing up gore as white-hot pain blossomed in my chest and back. Bullets stitched to the ground in front of me, driving Alice back to her car. I was deafened. The sound of automatic weapons fire sounded dull beneath a high-pitched whine in the center of my head. I tried to crawl forward, but the pain was too immense and I couldn't feel my arms. My legs kicked uselessly at the ground. My eyelids grew heavy and the world swam out of focus, leaving me with a deep yearning for sleep. My heart was beating too quickly, pushing far too much plasma from my body. Black shoes rushed forward. Bare, caramel-colored ankles and smooth shins kneeled before me and I watched Alice's lips move, but I couldn't hear her over the ringing in my ears. My eyelids were heavy. I didn't want to close them, but I did. I tumbled into a void of silence and darkness, feeling nothing, even as I coughed, racking my body, purging myself of fluid. The darkness was a cool invite, but it promised warmth, and I could deny it no longer. I fell in whole and knew that I was damned. My eyes fluttered open briefly. 
red lips floated before me, impossibly delicate. They parted to reveal white, impossibly perfect teeth, and they swallowed me into the darkness. Chapter 7 Memseek 0500187985 Gunfire sounded in the distance, loud enough to pull me from my stupor. I needed a few moments to collect myself and remember where I was and why there might be gunfire. The sound was no longer foreign to my life. I untangled myself from a thin, moth-eaten blanket and pushed myself up from an equally thin cot, gripping the metal frame for support. Rifle reports echoed in the air, and I recognized the familiar cadence of target practice. The cot across from mine was empty. I pushed through the tent, surprised by how early the hour was. The sun was slowly ascending, and the grass was wet with dew. The smell of coffee pulled me toward the reservoir, and people sat in lawn chairs beside their RVs, eating and drinking. Our little group had picked up three newcomers, refugees heading north from Chula Vista to escape the Mexican gangs and militias fighting over border claims. The plan was to head east, into the sunbelt. My exhalations turned into gray bursts of vapor, and I stuffed my hands deeper into my wool-lined coat pockets. I nodded at the few acquaintances Mesa and I had made, my mouth watering at the plates of venison being breakfasted on, even though the meat was too gamey for my taste. Not feeling particularly personable, I filled a cup with coffee and moved off toward the shooting area. Staring intently through the scope, Mesa had a rifle stock jammed against her shoulder. A man in his mid-twenties stood close to her, his hand pressed low and flat against the small of her back. I didn't much appreciate the familiarity of the gesture. In the still moment, my footsteps crunched loudly, and Jacob took his hands away from my daughter and stood at a more respectful distance as I approached. Morning, I said. He nodded hello. Mesa said nothing, as was often her way these days. She stared down the gun sights, centered it, and fired. The bullet pinged through an old soup can maybe thirty feet away, knocking it over. She watched it all through the scope, and when she was satisfied that the can was going to stay down, she relaxed and lowered the rifle. She looked at me quickly before pretending to ignore me. It was what passed for acknowledgement between us. She gave the rifle back to the boy and sulked off. How's she doing? I asked him. Good. She's a good shot. Any funny business between you two? His face reddened and the denial that stumbled out was a lie. She's too young for you, I told him. She's just a kid. Yeah, he said. Okay. Unless you want to end up like that soup can, you'll listen to me. You stay away from her. Yeah, okay, he said again, but his whiny, high-pitched tone told me otherwise. I didn't expect him to listen to reason, even as I hoped nothing worse ever came of this. I made sure he saw the resolve in my eyes and made sure he broke eye contact first. He said, yeah, okay, again, then pushed past me, muttering beneath his breath. Fucking kids, I said. The coffee was too bitter and burnt. I flung what little was left toward a clump of dead trees. Something rustled a bit deeper in the woods, drawing closer and moving quickly. We'd seen bobcats a few nights before, and the few deer we'd come across we'd killed and butchered for meat. I found the grip of my gun at the same time a small child burst from the trees, smears of dirt and blood on his face. Charlie, thirteen years old maybe, one of the scouts who had gone out the other day, but three others had been with him. Get out, he said, panting heavily. Go, they're coming. The words struck me dumb with terror, but I turned on my heel and chased after him, back up the slope. To each cluster of people he passed, he said the same thing, breathless and wheezy. PRC, PRC, PRC! Everyone was bewildered and dazed. We'd expected it, of course, but that didn't make it easier. Mesa was having an animated conversation with another girl as I ran toward her. Come on, I said, we gotta go. Go where? she asked. I grabbed her hand, making her run with me. Hey, let go, goddammit! Where are we going? I shoved her through the tent before me, dug the rifle up from beneath her cot, and handed it to her. I could see the terror in her eyes and tears standing on the surface. She wouldn't take the rifle. I shoved it against her, forcing her to take a hold of it or drop it. Come on, I said, grabbing my own rifle. I led her up the trails to a nice perch for us to take aim. Through the scope, I watched mothers and their children being pushed into the RVs. The men stayed outside, shoving the doors after them, then banging on the side, telling them to go, go, go. 
A few clusters of single women with guns joined the party. Everett, you up there, man? I'm here, I said. One of the men in our camp, Kevin Mason, was a communications engineer and had found a way to jury-rig a local system for our neural comnet. That was him inside my head. You see anything? What have we got? There's a squad coming through, I said. Count eleven strong. I suspected that our scouts had reduced their numbers. Most PRC squads were composed of fourteen men. They'd met up with our scouts, one group stumbling upon the other, and shots had been exchanged. Of the four who had gone into the woods, only the boy had returned. The squad could have been out there for a training exercise or as part of a mission. Any reason at all, really. Maybe Pacrim satellites had picked up our heat signatures from orbit and they had come to check it out. They'd engaged our scouts and would soon be coming upon our small but armed band. They would have transmitted word back to their base that they'd come under fire. If satellites hadn't found us before, they would be searching for us now, and the data streams would be feeding information to them about our locations, our weapons, our numbers, and the terrain. Back at their base, reinforcements were no doubt being prepped for support, and choppers would be winding up to come in hot. There were maybe twenty of us. Not many, but enough to hopefully do what we had to do and get the fuck out. Mesa and I had been practicing with the rifles for a little more than a month. We were rank amateurs, and we knew it. We had to pull our weight, though. Our little commune didn't have much use for a community college art history instructor. Despite that, it had turned out that we weren't all bad, and even Mesa seemed to have a small bit of natural talent for shooting. Jacob, our tutor, if you could call him that, had lived in Michigan for a time. Then the plant he had worked at was shut down, and he'd found himself heading west. He'd been young enough to be able to get a fresh start somewhere new. He had served in the army for a single tour, but he'd learned most of his shooting skills from his father and uncle. They had spent long weekends in the woods, hunting deer, and much of the advice he gave us had once been passed down to him. He seemed to have a knack for teaching. Through the scope, I watched the squad taking careful, measured steps. They were alert, their eyes scanning across the potential battlefield before them. They moved with assuredness, but also with a subtle hint of nervousness. You could see it in the eyes of the younger soldiers, and they fought to clamp it down, Adam's apples bobbing as they choked their hearts back down into their chests. They were spacing themselves out as they moved, consciously making many targets instead of one large group that could be brought down more easily and quickly. They were silent, their mouths still, no hand signals since they were glued to their guns. Any communications to one another were being done through neural nets. Their combat armor was devoid of rank in an effort to better camouflage the commanding officer. I looked for the minor tells that would give away the squad leader, hoping a newbie would shoot a glance over to whoever was in charge before moving forward. I found a candidate in a markedly older man. He was graying at the temples, and crow's feet crinkled the corners of his eyes. A glance passed between him and a younger man, along with almost a nod, which told me he was in charge. Do you see him? I asked Mesa. Her grip tightened around the rifle stock and her lips were parted in a small O. She licked her top lip and nodded. Her nervousness came off her in waves. I could almost hear her heart racing with fear. Shoot him, I whispered. Uh-huh. Do it. No. Mesa, come on, shoot him. Her lower lip trembled and a glassy sheen coated the surface of her eyes. She shook her head. It's like the deer, remember? You can do this, hon. Shut up! Fear edged into her voice, tight and whiny, with a bitter dash of anger. She had hate in her eyes. We don't have time for this, I said. I need you with me on this. It's like we talked about before. We both need to take down a target. I have mine, you have yours. We have to do this. I can't, she said. Her mother's stubbornness reared its head, a steadfast refusal steeled with a conviction that nobody would ever change her mind. God damn it, Mesa. Her tears ran freely, but her hands were still tight on the rifle. She still gazed through the scope, following their movements. My gut was tightly coiled, a cold ball the size of my fist. It threatened to lurch its way up my torso, and a cold sweat broke across the nape of my neck. I left my rifle and crab walked across the rocky ground to her. The cold earth dampened the front of my clothes. I hugged her with my body and pushed a finger through the trigger guard over hers. Do you have a target? I asked her. She snuffled, her throat thick with snot. She wiped it away with her wrist, then palmed away the tears. I can't do this. You have to do this. 
Something painful pulled through my heart with the delicacy of barbed wire. I hated myself for what I was asking of her. But these were the new rules. This was our new life. She had to survive, and that meant making painful choices and awful compromises. I followed the line of the rifle barrel. Her finger was cool beneath mine, her hand clammy. I kissed the side of her face, tasting tears on my lips, and whispered, Everything's going to be all right. I pulled the trigger with her. So close to her, I could hear her gasp, even over the sound of the gunfire, as a red mist exploded from the man's head. The soldiers paused in reflex, looking around them as if an intruder were in the field with them. I slid back to my rifle as their eyes started to scan the horizon, looking for us. One man got excited and forgot about the comnet, pointing up at the mountain pass where Mesa and I were, shouting in Chinese. Eyes and guns turned toward us. I pulled the scope close, trying to find my previous target, the older man with a weathered look. As I found him, the ground around me jumped where bullets landed, kicking up dust and rocks. Something hot scraped my hand, but I ignored it, centering the target in my crosshairs. We'd found a deer the previous week, the first time I had ever killed something. I had felt tremendously guilty, watching its dull, dark eyes. It had not known I was there, up in a tree blind. It had been content and at peace. Sharp, intelligent eyes scanned its surroundings. Seeking potential threats, its ears twitched at the strange sounds of the woods. I had taken a slow, deep breath, not wanting to pull the trigger, but knowing that I must, because our survival depended on it. We needed meat. We weren't killing for sport. I rationalized it and eased the trigger back. A wash of guilt swept through me, along with power, an assertion of control and dominance. It felt right. It felt natural. And that made the guilt worse. But it also made the second time, and the time after that, easier. When I pulled the trigger and turned the soldier's face into a messy crater, I had no remorse. I watched a man die instantly through the center lines of my scope, comfortably at ease. Mesa was crying, and I knew how frightened she was as the bullets landed nerve-wrackingly close. Two down, I said, seeking out a third target. About time, Mason said. The soldiers were moving quickly, seeking cover behind loose scrub and felled trees that the winter thaw had carried down from the mountainside. Some retreated to the edges of the woods and hid among the branches. Gunfire echoed from the canyons below as our guys stepped up to meet the enemy. Mesa, how you doing, honey? I don't want to kill anymore. Her voice sounded numb and distant, and that awful barb ripped through me once again. I'm sorry, sweetie, I said. I really am, but if we're going to get out of this, we need to fight. This isn't going to be easy. My bravado was gone, and I was an idiot for having thought that this could be easy or that because we had better numbers it meant victory. We weren't soldiers. Jacob was the closest, but even he had never seen combat. Much of his military experience consisted of filing away personnel records at a base in Germany. We weren't even a militia. We were painters, bakers, construction workers, teachers, and crossing guards. No training, no battlefield experience. We were in way over our heads. Mesa's face was pressed tightly to the scope, and she clung to the rifle as if she were drowning. But she would not fire. She would not take a life. One soldier risked a glance over the fallen tree trunk he'd tucked behind, rising high enough for me to chance it. I fired, but he was already ducking back down, and the bullet crashed into his cheek. He fell back, writhing on the ground, both hands pressed tightly to the wound. Stop it, Mesa cried. I thought she was yelling at the screaming man below. She rushed at me, falling to her knees as she skidded toward me. She pounded my face with her fists. The eyepiece of the sniper's scope cut me above my eye. I rolled onto my back, my hands up in defense, but it left my belly exposed and she started punching away at my ribs. Stop it, she yelled over and over. Stop it. I grabbed her in a bear hug, pulled her to the ground, pushed myself on top of her, and suffocated the fight out of her. Mesa's outburst had surprised the PRC. It had surprised everyone, and the battlefield became dull and quiet in its wake. Then I heard the nearly silent thrumming of a Hilo's twin-drive screw engines, felt the warmth pulsing from its large black body as it descended. 
Demanding submission, pairs of gunnery sergeants hung from each side of the large insectal aircraft's carapace. Mesa yelled at me, but her words held no shape and were mashed into angry noises. A thick rope of saliva hung between her lips, and she was breathing so hard and raggedly that snot bubbles burst in both nostrils. Eventually, she grew still as the fight drained out of her. Below, heavily armored soldiers were rounding up the people I had come to consider friends and leading them to the helo. A half-squad was making its way up the trail to us as Mesa grew still. I hugged her, and she hugged me back. Her body curled against mine, and her arms snaked around my neck as she held herself against me. I want mom, she said in a half-gasp. I was suddenly struck by how young she really was. For the last few years, she had hidden behind a thick shell of teenage angst with attitude despair. She smoked, drank, and denied all of it. She had an old soul, though, and often acted years beyond her actual age, her rebelliousness aside. She was emotionally strong, strong-willed, and independent to the point of seeming indifferent. But red-faced and crying, her breath coming in ragged puffs of fog, the facade had broken down around her, and she buckled beneath the weight. She was a child, a girl in need of her mother, in need of a comfort and warmth beyond those a father could provide. She was an innocent. I know, sweetie, I do too. The fight was entirely gone from her. She was my little girl again. I listened to the crunch of earth beneath heavily soled boots and felt hands grab me roughly, pulling Mesa and me apart. She went limp as she was dragged away, and neither of us struggled against the restraints. We had no need to. Our war was over. Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Out on the Fringe as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at SerialAudio.com. That's all one word, SerialAudio.com, where you can subscribe to this and our other shows via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serial audio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy.